All right, we're gonna we're gonna get to recording before we like do the whole podcast without actually recording it. So there we go. That's a good idea. Well done, Brant. Well done. Uh, you know, you do this for eight or nine years, and a couple of the tricks of the trade kind of you know you sort of learn those. <laughs> Hit that record uh, button. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Welcome, everybody. We're up to episode eight of season 11 of Mention and Dispatches. I did mention it an episode or two ago, but I do want to throw the plug in again. You know, if, if you can, please follow the link on the uh, podcast episode over to, to iTunes. I know not everybody's a big fan of iTunes, but those of you with, with iTunes accounts, if you can go throw us a rating. Again, if it's one star, I sort of question why you're still listening to us. But, you know, it doesn't have to be five stars. Give us whatever you think is fair. We just need some more ratings overall to start showing up in the recommendation engines over on iTunes uh, that, that they'll start recommending us as, hey, if you like this, you're other similar podcasts just to to get people to try and pay attention and and similarly like if spotify is your platform of preference or google podcasts or whatever um you know leave a review leave a rating leave a whatever i i don't know what their thresholds are for appearing in the recommendation engine but we we definitely appreciate you doing that for us and that would be great just to help other people sort of you know find us and, and spread the love a little tonight we've got a pair of guests that are both coming back to us from previous seasons um and both are experienced uh folks in the game industry been around for a while and and have a bunch of experience with crowdfunding. And so we've brought them in tonight to talk about how crowdfunding works from the, the publisher and production side. Um, what goes into the, what kind of planning factors do you have for a Kickstarter? Uh, what goes into the prep work getting to the launch while, while you are launched and in flight? What are the kinds of activities that you do? And then sort of once that thing closes, there's still a whole lot of work to do. And, and so what comes after that? So when you see that Kickstarter campaign show up, uh, you know, when, when we recommend one to you on Tuesday Newsday and say, hey, here's a new thing that just launched. What is it that's actually gone on up to that point and what's still yet to happen afterwards? So to that end, um, our buddy Hellcat6, Tim, is back from Catastrophe Games. Tim, welcome back. Thank you much. Thank you. And uh, I'm glad you're not camping in the woods. Much better signal. So that's that's good. I don't know if Fort McCoy is considered camping in the woods. It would probably be a Marriott uh, because that's where my points are. So um, <laughs> just because I'm doing stuff for the Army doesn't necessarily mean I got a tent out there. Well, but you see, if you were in the Air Force, we would assume hotel. But since well, you're not, yeah, good point. We're, we're not I'm just an team. old contractor now, so I you know different. You should have different expectations of of what Army Army experiences for me are like now. That that's true. That's true. Every Every contractor gig I was on, I was in a decent hotel. So that's uh, that's true. Um, and then also joining us uh, back for another run through the podcast here, uh, Mr. Jeff Tidbull, who is uh, also somewhere way north of where I am. Um, but Jeff's been around the, the gaming world at large, not necessarily wargaming specific stuff, but the gaming world at large for several decades. And uh, and welcome back, Jeff. Thank you. It's good to be here. Je Jeff, a quick question, uh, slightly off of tonight's topic, but... Um, I know you were at GameholeCon just recently. Um, how did that go? What, what was it like? I've never made it to GameholeCon. One of these days, I might be able to make it, but how was it? Uh, it was fantastic. This was my first GameholeCon. Uh, reviews from friends and other industry folks have been extremely solid. Uh, although the thing that finally pushed it over the edge to get there is we've got uh, some close friends who run Monty Cook games. Uh, and my oh. wife kind of poked me 
seven or eight months ago when she found out that they were going to be there and said that uh, it was time for us to exhibit there so we would get a chance to hang out with them for a while. So that was the the thing that made it happen. But it was a uh, extremely good show. They are very, very well organized there. Um, the, you know, one thing that is a key factor for any like professional attendance at a convention is how but what's it going to cost to get all the people and all this stuff out there and shows that are within a drive always have a huge leg up. So getting to Madison from Minneapolis is a very easy car ride. So there were no flights, there was no drayage, there was no shipping of pallets. Uh, but even if even if some of those things would have had to happen, um, revenue was real solid from the booth space that we had, people were very receptive to our games. Um, Madison's an inexpensive place to get a hotel room. The convention facility was really, really good. So I, I've got nothing nothing at all bad to say. I will definitely be back. Uh, for folks that are wondering, it's uh, about the same weekend. It's October 17th to 20th next year. And uh, so that's that's the one you want to go hit. And, and again, back in Madison, Wisconsin. So some folks have said that this is kind of the spiritual successor to the original Lake Geneva Gen Cons. I heard that multiple times. That's, uh, it sounds like that is part of their kind of strategic goal is to make it as much as possible like the early Gen Cons. And, you know, from what I can remember, my first Gen Con was in 1986. And so uh, that was, I think, the second year in Milwaukee. I was not at any of the locations before that. But people who uh, who would know say that they're kind of nailing that. Now, it's mostly, uh, from what I could tell, I didn't play in anything while I was there, but it looks like their event catalog is uh, very role-playing focused, which is not to say there was not any other stuff, but that, that seems like it is the show's sweet spot. Yeah. They, they bill themselves as, uh, the largest majority RPG convention or like the, the RPG convention with the greatest percent or the, the game convention with the greatest percentage of RPG events or something around that, right. That, that they're like the biggest thing that's RPG focused, I guess is the, what I'm stumbling into there. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they also say that they've got fantasy and historical miniature gaming and board games. So did you see a lot of like board games out there or historical games or hex encounter games or anything like that? I mean, we ran uh, a full slate of card games. There was it was not difficult to find other card games. Our table that we had was surrounded by them. Um, there was plenty of stuff from Thunderworks represented there. Uh, I walked very briefly through the halls and saw some interesting stuff. There were some folks from a club that I later learned was called Twin Cities Ameritrash who were running a <laughs> mashup of Mario Kart and Pitch Car. Um, ah. <laughs> that's awesome that sounds kind of awesome yes um that's apparently the half of mario kart is you throwing things at other people right i mean right car seems like a natural connection that's apparently part of this group's specialty is doing uh convention games that are mashups of other games so i guess they have a mashup between last night on earth uh and some kind of a mall related game that they do um it seemed it seemed pretty good. I did not get into all the different gaming rooms. I did not see a ton of miniatures, did not see a ton of war games, but it also would have been very easy for me not to see that because there were plenty of rooms where I did not go at all. Yeah, and it, it's always when you're an exhibitor, it's always tough to be a tourist. Yes. So yeah, that's that that definitely gets gets to be difficult. So um 
No, it's, it sounds like it's really cool. One of these days, I would like to get up there. It's just an issue of, of kind of time. For me, I got to get on a plane to get there. You know, it's it's not a drivable one for me. And uh, But it, it's still, it's it's one of those mid-sized conventions that always has kind of a really cool feel about it that I see a lot of friends talking about. Um, you know, Matt Forbeck was sharing a ton of photos from up there where he was doing some of his, uh, the new Marvel superheroes role-playing thing that, that he, he had authored, um, or I guess he was the lead on, I don't know that he was the sole author, uh, but he was sharing a bunch of photos from up there and it always looks really cool. And I, I would want to go. Uh, it's just a matter of trying to figure out like, all right, I got to get on a plane to do this. Now what? All right. So Tim, I, I know you guys had, has UConn happened yet? I don't think that one's hit just yet. Has it? Uh, the one in Ann Arbor? No, that is in November. So uh, Christopher and I are going to meet up for that one. And uh, that will be my first time attending that one as well. So I will be scoping it out. And, and I will do my best to be a tourist to find out what else is going on there. Because um, I do try to do as much tourist type stuff as I can in these cons. Just to just to kind of check out what else is going on and see what other kind of games are happening. And, and uh, you know, from the, from the perspective of a business owner, like what's selling, who's got lines at their booth, um, and then trying to see what seems really interesting out there from the from the tourist standpoint. Like, wow, that looks really cool. Uh, like the 3D stuff that always happens, the 3D miniatures that happen at Origins, always fascinating yeah. to see what's going to be there next. There was no chance I would have made Game Hole Con this year, even if you'd handed me a free plane ticket, because while you guys had the convention going on up in Madison, we were holding our first ever in-person convention down here for the Dragoons, um, down here in North Carolina. And, and it wasn't a huge crowd. I'm not sure we we broke 30 at, at any point, but it was a very active crowd. There were always four or five tables minimum with something going on them. Uh, some of them, I, we had a, a market garden game that ran 10 hours uh, and, and and they didn't make it out of like day two of market garden. And they were, they were just going for all, they were having fun doing it. And, and we just, uh, we had stuff on tables nonstop from when this, because we did it in a store, uh, gamers armory hosted us. So we were in the store and they, they ran from when they opened to when they kicked us out at night. So it was, it was pretty solid. It was, it was a good first, first attempt. We'd never done an in-person convention before we'd done a bunch of virtual ones, but never an in-person one. And so it was cool to get an in-person one under our belt. So looking forward to seeing yeah. where it goes over the next few years. As I look at it from the pictures, it seemed like you had recreated Buckeye Game Fest in the South. It was it was very much the war room of Buckeye Game Fest. Yes, that's that's a fair and and that's kind of what we were going for uh, because a lot of the other stuff. Were other like, things outside the war room? Yeah, <laughs> there are. I have photographic evidence. So there was uh, a giant diplomacy game that I really, really wanted to get onto, but I couldn't get the timing right. Yeah. Well, it was the same one they had at Origins. I know. I knew I couldn't do the one at Origins, but if you, I thought I could maybe sneak in the one at Buckeye Game Fest, but that just yeah. didn't happen. Yeah. For uh, for folks that don't know, Buckeye Game Fest is held in the same hotel where Origins takes place. It's just instead of being out, um, having having the, the game events and a lot of the other stuff out in the convention halls themselves, they use a bunch of the conference rooms uh, down near the food court, actually. There are a lot of the rooms where RPG stuff happens during origins itself and they've got the the main tabletop gaming hall with a small not very impressive little baby dealer room next to it they have one room that's just the cabs library and for those that don't know the the library from the columbus area board gaming society is the same library they use at origins so you get the origin size board game library at a convention about a tenth of its size 
And uh, and every time I take a picture of this thing, I always have to do it in panorama mode because the library spreads out so long. Um, they'll have one room where they have some RPG stuff, not a lot because that's not really the focus of that convention. They have the war room that Tim mentioned, which is a, a very large hotel conference room that's set aside just for the war gamers, which is pretty cool that they do that for us. Uh, and then the large diplomacy game that Tim's talking about, they'd set up in the lobby kind of in between all of the other rooms. And they always... Uh, They've always got a guy there who sets up the Artemis Spaceship Bridge Simulator at Buckeye Game Fest. The big difference between that and Origins is at Origins, you got to pay like 10 bucks to go through that thing. And at BGF, you can do it for free. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> One more thing I'll have to add to my list because I've never done that. I've always wanted to do it, but I never have. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So, Jeff, I don't know if you've ever made it down to Buckeye Game Fest. I, I know it's theoretically drivable for you, but that's probably still a bit of a stretch. I have not, no. Yeah, and it's... It's not much of a dealer hall to where you would get a whole lot of foot traffic trying to be there as a commercial entity, you know, showing off new games. It, it'd be a place where you definitely get a bunch of stuff played, but not necessarily a, a retail sales sort of thing. That is very much not the shtick there at all. Right. So, um, but yeah, it was it, it. It's been fun all of the years that we've done BGF. We've talked a bunch of convention stuff here. We're, you know, over 10 minutes into what's supposed to be a podcast about Kickstarter stuff. And yet we talked a bunch of conventions, which is fine. Um, as as a consumer, when I see, you know, hey, Catastrophe Games just launched Stonewall or Zermatt or, you know, uh, Britannia or whatever the latest game is, obviously there's a bunch of prep work that's gone in ahead of that. And, uh, and, and Jeff, you guys had the, uh, I'm going to totally mess up the name on it and you just thought i'd have pulled it up on screen ahead of time but the one with the uh the song the 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 rock songs the trying to album bander album yes um and that one you know you, you had that one launched and i think you did did you run a, a crowdfunding campaign for flapjacks and sasquatches um we uh yes and no i mean yes and we <laughs> just recently got done with a uh, kickstarter campaign for three different lumberjack themed games so the, the first of those was a dice game based on the Flapjacks and Sasquatches card game. And then the second one is a ridiculous little card game called Lumberjacks with Rocket Launchers, which is about what you think. And then a <laughs> well, third game, cool. which was a stretch game that was unlocked during the campaign, free to all of the backers at a certain level above, is called Squatch and Seek. And that one is a uh, straight reskin of a game that another local Minneapolis publisher does called Squirrel or Die. It's a sort of a combat memory card game. So three games, most of the backers of that campaign will get all three of those games. You taught my kids Squirrel or Die at Origins, I think it was 2019 when we were on the other side. might have been 2018 when we were on the other side of the curtain from you. Oh. And uh, they, they still get it out on occasion. Right so on. That that one still comes out to the table every once in a while. So I I I I get the reference for Squirrel or Die. The rest of the world might not, but I've got kids who play it, so I know. <laughs> right on. But but you're lean, you're leaning hard into those whole Minnesota roots with that much lumberjack stuff. I, I yes. <laughs> I, I gotta ask, like last time you were here when we were talking game design stuff and kind of teaching game design stuff, you had mentioned that you know this the the way to describe the game is this is a game where you do x by y lumberjacks with rocket launchers what's the what's the kick there you do x by y what what is it we're doing here (laughs) i mean 
Right. So Lumberjacks with Rocket Launchers is a game where you attempt to be the last Lumberjack standing by uh, launching rockets to the left and the right. So the basic play in the game is to take a rocket card out of your hand and rockets always sit on the table in between two pairs of players. So you can either point it at the player to your left or point it to the table to the player to your right. And then other cards affect that layout of cards on the table. So you can... uh, move cards around to the next player so they'll all either rotate clockwise or rotate counterclockwise there are uh, cards that you play called rocket time and if somebody plays a rocket time well there are three rockets pointed at you uh, you are blown up and knocked out of the game this is a very fast game there's not a ton of like mechanical complexity all of the gameplay kind of emerges from very simple atomic elements yeah i i got look you've done ours magica you worked on fantasy like you you've done all these very cerebral rpg kinds of things and now you're shooting rockets at lumberjacks i am uh, very old now and i cannot remember enough things at once to, to work on complicated <laughs> games anymore you're the youngest guy on this call dude well <laughs> i'm man i, I did just you ever feel like walking into the ocean i don't know i yeah. feel like i'm very old <laughs> fair enough so so as we get so i i'm a consumer i hit kickstarter i say hey that campaign looks kind of cool um got some good information about it got a, a solid base product and those first two stretch goals look kind of neat i'm gonna plunk down my shekels for the pledge obviously there's been a ton of crap that got us to that point as you're initially laying out the battle plan for all right i've got an idea for a game i want to get it published i need to take it through crowdfunding um we'll start with jeff and then throw it over to tim here in a second but uh as you plow through that planning process somewhere in there i imagine you start with in order to print x number of copies of the game i need this minimum number of this minimum amount of capital um that's probably the i'm guessing that's the starting point for the math that says this is what my target is and then you start adjusting from there how does all the planning come together here? Yeah, that's that kind of actual nut to produce is definitely something that you've got to know as a Kickstarter producer. Um, I think that over time, it has become pretty infrequent for that number to bear much resemblance to the funding goal that most Kickstarters are listed at. Um, and the reason for that is that essentially the only statistics that Kickstarter uh, kind of reveals in public and to backers are, uh, well, that number, of course, that's revealed. That's what the um, producer sets. And then they reveal how much money has it raised to date. And then they reveal what is the percentage of the one to the other. And, you know, because Kickstarter is like anything else, any other marketplace where nothing succeeds like success, one of the best ways to make your campaign look successful and thereby gather more backers is to artificially juice that percentage by lowering the uh, amount that you're asking as far as you possibly can. And there's essentially no penalty for doing that since you can cancel a campaign while it's running. So let's say that you uh, exceed the amount that you you say is the amount that you've got to raise, but you actually remain dramatically short of what you know in your heart of hearts it's going to take in the form of a check to the factory to make it happen. There's nothing evil that Kickstarter does to you for giving up on a campaign that's between those two numbers. And so it's become, I don't have any like data on this, but from 
discussions among different Kickstarter producers, and especially from discussions with the companies whose bread and butter is running ads to help promote Kickstarter campaigns, it's real, real common for those uh, those two numbers to not bear a ton of resemblance to each other. Now, while that seems like a real cynical state of affairs, um, there's also the less cynical piece of math that goes into there. And this is, in, in, in my case, and I imagine also in lots of different publishers' cases, there is the reality where you could do a very, very, very minimal print run in order to satisfy the actual number of backers that you have for the campaign. Uh, and that's great. But the actual goal from a long-term standpoint is to produce a larger number of games than that and to thereby make more profit over time by continuing to sell those copies through Amazon, through distributors, through direct sales to independent game stores, through direct sales on your own website. So whereas this Lumberjack Kickstarter uh, campaign that I did recently had, uh, oh, let me just go check quick. What's the actual backer count here? 390 backers for that. Uh, I will certainly print between two and 3,000 copies of the Flapjacks and Sasquatches dice game and the Lumberjacks with Rocket Launchers game um, and continue to sell those hopefully over years. And that drives down my cost per game um, and makes it very possible to essentially use that seed money to help make profit over time. Now, it is my absolute pledge and promise to all of those 390 backers that I will absolutely deliver to them those games that I promised. So like from their perspective and from from a perspective of what is my promise to them, uh, I could spend a minimum amount of money to produce only 390 copies of each of those games and get that done for a lot less than what it costs to produce thousands of copies of all of those games. So like that all is kind of behind the curtain math that frankly a backer should never have to be concerned about. Um, so that's a really long-winded answer to a relatively simple question. But there's, I guess, boil it down, there's lots of different considerations to that past what is the minimum number of dollars that it would take to produce the exact thing being kickstarted? Yeah. I, you know, again, the, uh, as the consumer, you never see the math or, you know, unless you've, you've dabbled in that kind of business, that's not something you ever would have seen. So it's, it's not a surprise that, uh, folks wouldn't, fully you know necessarily grok where you're going with with how you get from from point a to point b so mm -hmm. um, and, and as you noted you know it's probably not something they necessarily should be all that concerned with the thing that i think a uh modestly sophisticated kickstarter backer should do is just give that page a sniff test right does it make sense that this company or person is going to be able to produce that thing for this many dollars and ship it to me on more or less the schedule that they're talking about. Some campaigns completely do not pass that sniff test. Uh, for others, it seems very easy that that could get done. Um, and after you've backed five or 10 campaigns and gotten a sense of what the backer updates and communications look like and what does a uh, reasonably produced Kickstarter page look like, that that's not, that's certainly not any more difficult than bringing your car to a mechanic and getting a sense of whether the person who's taking your credit card stands a credible chance of fixing your car.
think I've, I've been a little lucky in that I've never had a Kickstarter campaign that successfully, that, that I backed, that was successfully funded, not deliver. Um, hmm. I've had a few that have been woefully late, but they have always shown up. I've, I've never had to worry about whether or not the, the, the game is actually going to arrive. So I've, I cannot say that <laughs> I have not been that lucky. Not with games. I guess I should. Uh, I'll retract. So with games, I've been 100. percent Every every game that I've I've backed, I've eventually gotten. Has never been uh, an issue. I I did not do the upfront came so it's not to ask one reason i uh i didn't have that but uh for some other non-game related stuff i have gotten burned so uh, i will never get my solar charge battery system that sounded really cool that has not ever had an update uh, that's just done that person made off a lot of money on that uh, so um anyhow so i have i have had that bad experience with kickstarter but um just like jeff said when i when i go and look at a kickstarter campaign for a game i will go and give it that sniff test and look and see what's their track record just how ambitious are they trying to be here if they if it's a first time company and they've got a really ambitious goal and they got all sorts of really cool sexy bits with it then i've got to look a little bit harder and see if that person or that company has had some experience down the road that would give me the confidence that yes, they can go and make this wonderful thing that they say they're going to have with foil cards and, and plastic bits and spinners and whatever. Um, so that's that's what I I do the same thing there just to make sure that they I am expecting to get what I'm backing. Yeah. So um, all right. So we, we figured out the target number that we're aiming for. Um, or or you know Jeff, you've given us your run through. Tim, it, based on what Jeff was describing, is there a whole lot of difference in your in in your process leading up to you know ba based on production considerations, the math needed to fund the game? Is that all? Is your process roughly in line? with what Jeff was describing or is there anything you want to add to that? Well, it's roughly the same, although I will say that I have it a lot easier with my historical games so far because I have always done print on demand. So with Blue Panther, I am going to print exactly what I need. I don't have to worry about hitting a certain threshold or maybe I can't produce the game because as long as I, I hit a certain minimum, which is really low, I'm able to make the game regardless. So just like Jeff was talking about with one of his games, my goal is to create a historical game that's going to have a long back life, that it's going to continue going and going that people are going to buy into the future as they discover the game or they're interested in whatever the history is. So they want to go out there and get that kind of a game and they discover that, hey, Catastrophe Games has a game about Gallipoli. I'm going to go and buy that game. That's, that's kind of an advantage of being in a historical game company is I'm not necessarily tied to what's happening right now. Um, our folks were, were are, are the type of people that if they find that they're really interested in a game project, they will go and get that game years and years and years later. I mean, look how many times uh, on your podcast, people are talking about games that were designed in the 70s that people are still playing. You, you go to WBC or some of these other cons and, and many of the games that are getting played aren't the new ones that we just produced. It's some of them are still from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, they just have a very long life, historical games do, which is great for, for a publisher. It means that if you, you got a good product together, it's not going to just die off there. So I, I guess to go back to that, I have a little bit different methodology. I don't have to be worried about the price point so much, although we are exploring down the road, not necessarily doing print on demand. We may go to a traditional print model, which 
brings in all the kind of headaches that Jeff was talking about. We, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So um, our, ours is a little bit simpler as far as that goes. We basically use Kickstarter for marketing. We, we get this as an opportunity. We're going to push it out there. We're going to make a big marketing campaign, so to speak. So we'll get that out there to podcasters and, and influencers, and they can talk about the game and talk it up. And I'm not really caring so much. I mean, sure, I would love to have a big Kickstarter, but what I really like is that the buzz gets out there, that people are starting to hear about the game, that they may see that at a convention or they're, they, they're, they're surfing the web and they see an interesting post about that and say, I want to go out and get that game. And that will drive sales down the road. That's, that's what I'm hoping to get. It's, it's not necessarily the big bang up front, but I'm looking for that long term where I'm able to get some a more payoff down the road. So funny you should mention the whole marketing thing because that's kind of where we were going next. And, uh, and and one of the things that drives me nuts, so, you know, listeners know that we've got Tuesday Newsday on our website. So every Tuesday, we've got this giant news dump that includes uh, crowdfunding launches, whether they're Kickstarter or GameFounder or whatever, a lot of P500s for the companies that run their own pre-order systems. And, and so we talk a lot about those. Um, we, we don't go in depth on them, right? Because there's just too many news items to, to go in depth on on any of them really but but we'll give you the link we'll give you the bullet that says you know hey catastrophe games has launched this one um here's the link to it and and let folks go get them from there as one a big pet peeve of mine for both kickstarter and GameFound is that people will actually launch the page for you to start tracking and that bastard will sit there for six months collecting dust um, occasionally somebody comes in and blows the dust bunnies around with a can of air and sends out an update hey we're still working on it great i've been following this since july you're not going to start asking for funding until november what am i doing in between like why am i following you at this point i Tim, I know you're not one of the folks that does this, but as as you start looking at the comms plan, again, leading up to the point that the Kickstarter goes live, what are some of the, the tasks that you're mentally checking off in your head or or even better, like you've got an actual list of them somewhere. I, I know you, you've got your software that keeps you organized as far as all the tasks to count down to do. Um, what are some of those tasks on that to-do list from a, a marketing, a communications kind of standpoint leading up to that? Um, and, and then Jeff, we'll let you list all the things Tim forgets. <laughs> um, the, the getting the game ready enough to get out to get reviews is the critical task. So that that's the thing that I have, as I've discovered, like the first Kickstarter I did for Gallipoli, uh, I just threw it out there and away we went. Um, I had done worked on Kickstarters before with Academy Games. So I, it wasn't like I didn't have any idea of where it was going, but I wasn't quite sure with a game that small, what I needed to do, so on and so forth. And that kind of opened the door up to, for people about the company. And since then, each one, I've I spent more and more time trying to get, get the reviews done ahead of time, which then if you're doing the, like the backwards math and backwards planning, then you've got to have a decent prototype done like three months ahead of time so that you can go out and mail that out before your Kickstarter starts. And that might be one of the reasons why you see these folks that have a hey, follow this launch. And then it waits for six months or nine months or however long is because they're trying to track down, they're trying to get some magic number of reviews in 
before they launch. And until they get that, they're not going to launch. That's what I'm assuming, because that's the thing that kind of slows me down. I may get all this stuff ready. And then I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready. Uh, but the tough part is once you're like, okay, I think this game is ready to get reviewed. Let's get it out on a Kickstarter. You've got a three month delay you have to add in there. And three months, if everybody's like, yeah, I'm just sitting around waiting to go review your game and no one else is giving me games to review, which is not, is not. I'm pretty sure that did never happen. No, no. As, so, as one you of know, those you, guys, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so you got to like plan that stuff. That That is the thing that probably once you get to the point, like, yeah, I think it's ready to go. Then you're working that marketing piece to make sure that you've got enough social proof out there to make sure that your game, when folks are coming by there and they're looking at like, yeah, it looks like they've done their homework. They know what's going on. Some other folks have looked at it. They think it's a decent game. I'm going to go back this. So Jeff, build on to that. What, uh, uh, is that is that generally what you're looking for also or where do you vary from that theme well my timelines tend to fall apart so <laughs> i wish i could claim that <laughs> mine I too by the way just in case you're wondering <laughs> that's all hypothetical this three-month plan because that doesn't rarely happen that my plans fall apart all the time as far as this kickstarter all stuff. all right yeah. look jeff i'm i'm concerned listening to that because i sat in the back of a presentation you gave at gamma expo in reno about you know project management and here's how to keep yourself on track and so if the guy up there is telling me that his timelines fall apart all the time that doesn't bathe me in confidence i mean so the hilarious thing about this is that is the that the cobbler's kids have no shoes so i do uh like project managing consulting for other publishers and their timelines are fantastic and mostly get met and then when it comes time to work on my own projects there's uh more things sticking out the edges often. So it would have been, for example, on this Lumberjack Games campaign, it would have been fantastic if I had been uh, further ahead on the graphic design such that we could have gotten more review copies, especially of Lumberjacks with rocket launchers around uh, in order to do a better job of exactly what what Tim is talking about. Um, That is a, a pretty crucial driver these days of what people think when they show up on your Kickstarter page to have a look at it. Um, we can come back to that a little bit because that's actually something that I'm embroiled right in the middle of right now for my next Kickstarter, which will launch in January uh, and is called Jewels for the Emperor Penguin. But before I forget about it, I wanted to get back to your uh, observation slash complaint about those preview pages that you see on Kickstarter and on GameFound. Um, when I was at Atlas working on some campaigns, one of the most notable ones that drove home this point was the Kickstarter for Dice Miner. Um, The thing that we had noticed by that point, and I think we were three or four board and card game Kickstarters in at Atlas. The thing that we had noticed is that one of the very most important things that drove our first day backers is the size of the mailing list that we had assembled of people who had expressed interest in specifically that Kickstarter. So what we would do is put up a landing page that had relatively brief information about that Kickstarter, put it at a URL that was fall down stupid to remember, like atlasgames.com slash dice miner. And we would spend all of our preview marketing time essentially driving people to that landing page so that we could do nothing more than collect their email address with essentially our promise that we would never do anything with that sign up other than alert them when that campaign went live. Since uh, one of the most important metrics for what your Kickstarter is going to make is how much money it raises 
in the first two or three days. And since increasing the size of this list was the most important thing we could do to drive signups in that first 24 hours, based on that set of observation, it makes a lot of sense to me that Kickstarter and GameFound now both have essentially native functionality for harvesting those things. That native functionality did not exist at the time, but presumably they talked to the same people I talked to and their experiences were a lot similar to our experiences. And they just discovered that those campaigns make a lot more money if there is a long ramp up for people where there's a very obvious way that they can just get an alert when those Kickstarters launch. So that that's my that's my experience around that that makes me, I guess, I'm not necessarily agitated when I see that that sits up there for a long time. Those publishers may or may not be doing anything useful with that time, but I do know that that's very important for them to gather tons of people who are interested and kind of focus their attention at exactly the right moment in order to make their campaigns successful. Now, I will say that we did that with uh, Stonewall and we had a landing page um, because it was a very, I had no idea how Stonewall was going to go. It turned out to be our most successful Kickstarter campaign, but I had no idea, you know, such an unusual uh, topic that I was had no idea what to expect. So we did that. We did the traditional route that Jeff did, and it we had we had our best sales from that. We also tried using marketing, uh, actual company uh, to market with, and I ended up having to to end that halfway through the campaign because their cost to bring in a backer, they were bringing in backers, but my cost to produce that game because I do print on demand, my my production costs are so much higher than than the folks that. Are, print in China, uh, it, the cost to bring in that extra backer was actually more than what I was going to gain from the sale. So I had to stop it once I started doing the math and realizing just um, just how ineffective that was as far as bringing in backers that I had to end that uh, halfway through so that I'd end up not losing money with that. So an interesting Interesting experience with that. I may go to a marketing company again if I have another bigger game, kind of like Stonewall was. But for most of my historical games, we don't need to worry about that like like the plan that Atlas had. Um, I think that is kind of more of a non-historical game um, requirement. I think it's almost a requirement now to have those steps in place for the non-historical stuff. And as Valor Mountain, our, our non-historical side grows, we will continue to look at those efforts and probably model our stuff uh, kind of exactly like Jeff was describing. I you thought know, Chris I was your comms guy. What's that? I thought Christopher was your comms guy. He is. He is. And he does a great job with that. Um, but we, uh, and, and he is he is getting more and more involved. Like if you look at the first, first three or four campaigns I did, that was just all Tim. And they probably show that they're getting more slick as time goes on because Christopher is getting more involved. We actually have an artist now. And so our Kickstarter campaigns look much more polished than they did before. And that is, uh, well, that's Christopher being Christopher. So that's working out for us. Sorry, Jeff, I cut you off there. Oh, I was just going to say that our um, my experience with paid ads for campaigns has been really varied. And my current working theory is that one of the very most important things about whether those paid ads work is what your average pledge value is and what your profit margin is. Because I feel like, so all of these 
uh, companies that promote Kickstarter campaigns with ads, for the most part, do so on Facebook using Facebook ads. I talked to one recently who does about 20% of their ads on Google as well. So that'll be interesting to learn more about with a future campaign. But in any case, it seems to be the case that a Facebook click costs what a Facebook click costs and that that number does not vary a lot based on what kind of game it is. So if that click costs what it costs, if your profit margin is not sufficient, um, you wind up in that lose money on every backer situation. I had a uh, the, the campaign that I ran previous to the Flapjacks and Lumberjacks campaign was for a game, a card game called Broken and Beautiful, which is about Kintsugi, the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with gold lacquer. And that was a very small boxed game. It had a standard edition at 16 bucks and a deluxe edition at 30 bucks. And so that average pledge hovered around 30 bucks and there's just not enough money in there to pay for those clicks. So we turned those ads off after about 48 hours, I think, when it became clear that any given click just could not, on average, generate enough money to make it worthwhile. And so part of the art of making those advertising campaigns successful seems to be driving up the average pledge as far as you can with things like deluxe editions or um, higher level pledge values. That's one of the things that suggests the pledge values in the Lumberjack Games Kickstarter that include three different games and add-ons for RPG dice that have little pancake stacks inside and things like that. And those were very successful in pushing that average pledge. That average pledge on that campaign wound up being uh, nearly 80% higher than I predicted that it was going to be, um, which is a good thing because we wound up with fewer backers than I thought that we would probably have. Um, the campaign was more or less came in where I thought it would, but those two internal metrics I just had uh, relatively wrong. It's not clear if ads would have worked on that campaign or not because I did not wind up running any for it because I was too late coming in with the assets that they would have needed to get started. So that, that advertising piece definitely drives a lot of the success of campaigns with off the charts funding levels. I think I think that backers might be extremely surprised what percentage of a million dollar Kickstarter was paid to Facebook. <laughs> I would almost be afraid to see <laughs> that. Uh, we, we ran just a very small set of pretty tightly geographically targeted ads for for our convention last week. I mean, we we ran them several months ago, so people, you know, and in, in, and we targeted we're in North Carolina, so we targeted North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia. Because if you target Tennessee, you're going to get people in Memphis who just aren't making the drive. So, so we targeted those three and and looked for folks that you know had some affinity with wargaming. There were one or two things we said if they're interested in any of these, give it to us. And and we only spent maybe twenty bucks on it. Got a significant reach. I mean, we we hit five figures worth of impressions. Um, which this is the first time I've ever, ever in my life done a Facebook ad. And I'm not sure it resulted in a single conversion. Now look, it's probably worth throwing 20 bucks away to learn that lesson. But I, I was a little dumbfounded at both how completely and utterly ineffective it was at actually driving traffic to to even our information page to go learn more about the the convention. Um, but at the the bad on ramps to understanding the information they had to put in front of you, um, it was. And, and look, I'm I'm a dude with a master's degree in integrated communication. It's, it's journalism degree in integrated mass communication. Like this sort of digital stuff is the kind of thing we looked at back 
when I was in grad school, and I still couldn't make heads or tails the way they were reporting the stuff to me. So. It seems to be extremely crucial to hire a specialist company to do that work. I've had the exact same experience you have, where all of that nonsense in the in Facebook's advertising dashboard is uh, put together to confuse you into giving them money and talking yourself into believing that that was worthwhile. I think that that's a complete nonsense shell game. I, I am inclined to agree with you after my initial experience with it. <laughs> I mean, except, as I said, except for the fact that an extremely well-specialized company with a closet full of software developers does appear to be able to crack that and figure out what to do in order to turn that system into money. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think that a normal person stands a chance of getting that done. And, and I think I'm going to go back to what you said. I think it really works better if you've got an opportunity to spend a lot of money on your pledges, like you've got some really big pledge levels because you've got all this extra cool bits. Well, that's not any of the games I've done. So I think that might also be one of the reasons why when I've done this, it really didn't get much return for me and I had to turn it off. Right. Yeah. Now I, I can see that being totally accurate. The 11th season of the Armchair Dragoons podcast mentioned in Dispatches is graciously supported by all of our Patreon supporters who pledged at the top level. A huge thank you to Chet Bell, Hellcat6, Patrick Geraghty, Fred Stogg and his walking companion, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knorr, Trep Corey, Stagger Wing, Mark Talk and Kevin Bertram for their support of the Armchair Dragoons, which helps us bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. All right, so we've we've hit launch. So so we've done the math to kind of figure out. Okay, here's about what we think we need to raise in order to get this done, and and we figured out some some large approximation of what that communication plan should look like. Whether it's uh, you know what Tim was talking about about getting some some prototype copies made that you can get in the hands of reviewers to help create some content for you ahead of time, or targeting some ads, <clears throat> or or harvesting contact information that you can use to alert folks that hey, this is this is up and running um when is there what else are we missing in terms of prep before we hit the the launch button what else are we missing in the prep stage behind besides figuring out what it costs to do this and then you know the the letting other people know about it jeff what else needs to happen before we hit the go button well like one of the things is exactly as stupid as the problem that you have when you're first starting out in your career is that you can't get a job without experience. And it's kind of the same situation where the very best thing that you can possibly have for your Kickstarter is a track record of already having published a bunch of games. Yeah, um, that, that just kind of is what it is. And the same way you've just got to try to kind of get your foot in the door somewhere when you're just starting out with a career, you got to push those first campaigns out there and do your best and see how it goes. Um, the thing that I would say, the advice that I would give to someone publishing a game for the first time on Kickstarter who doesn't have the benefit of a track record is that it's very valuable to expose that 
page to lots of people who will give you feedback in advance of launching it. Because I think you can learn lots of things about what people uh, respond to, what questions they have uh, that will let you iterate that campaign page sort of before it's too late. All that assumes that you have done a good job of also doing that process with the game itself, exposing it to actual game players in order to improve the game design so that you have made the game design itself coherent and fun to play. That'll feed into what Tim's talking about in terms of getting good reviews and credible things that you can put on a page there. But there oh, are hey, also, you're supposed to do that before you publish. Games are supposed to be fun. What? <laughs> I'm just out on a limb here saying crazy talk. Always with the crazy talk. Um, but there are there are obviously like this seems so obvious when I say it out loud, but it's really true. And I think lots of people overlook it. Um, there are better and worse ways of just talking about a game and presenting information about it in terms of how you organize it on the page, in terms of how you um, organize the copy, just like even, even doing things like rewriting sentences over and over and over so they're very easy to read, doing things like throwing away 65% of the text on your page, because nobody's going to read all the text on your page. They're going to skim the thing making sure that you have used headers and bold segments to catch that skimmer's eye to get them to the very most important things. Those are things that you can learn by exposing that page to lots of people who um, have opinions that you trust, who will give you feedback that is unvarnished, not cruel, but unvarnished because they hope to see your project succeed. So you can, man, you could certainly spend six months going around on that if you were really um, devoted to the idea of polishing that page as much as possible. And if you did not have a lot of previous expertise from previous campaigns that are going to give you a head start on what works. Oh, that makes sense. So I, Tim, other than figuring out the costs and, and the, the, the money factor to it and that communication plan, what, what else, if anything, do you have to make sure you do before you hit the launch button? Yeah. Two key things for me, uh, that, that weigh in one is unique to me but another is one that's going to be into any publisher's uh, problem set right off the bat the first one is i don't like to have to wait forever to get a game that i have backed on kickstarter or GameFound or whatever so i don't want to wait a year i want to get that much sooner than that so if you look at my Kickstarters, I've got usually about six months that I put out there or, or less, like maybe four months that I've got for when I'm expecting to fulfill for that. And because I want, that's a personal thing that I want to do is I want to get the games out there faster. That means that I have to do some prep to make sure that the game is basically done. I don't have any extra time really afterwards to futz too much with things. So I've got to make sure that that basically with the reviewer copy that, that folks are getting is pretty much going to be a done game because I don't have that much time afterwards to go futz with that because I want to go and quick turnaround. Hey, you you backed it. I got to wait the month now to get my money. And then at that point, then I want to make sure that I'm able to start doing the final stages to print the game. I give an example for Zermatt. Zermatt has custom dice and I didn't want to get it from China because I just don't like some of the things that are going on in China. So I ordered that from Poland and to get that in time for the Kickstarter, there was a six month lead. So well before that Kickstarter even launched, I was ordering $5,000 worth of dice from Poland to make sure that they were going to get there. You know, the project management bit 
that that was going to get there and I wasn't going to have to wait for that. So that was kind of like a take a risk there. Obviously, I ordered more than I, I needed for the Kickstarter. And and that was that's that's one of the key things that I look at personally for catastrophe games is making sure that I can get the game produced quick enough for the backers for our own personal goals of of, of getting it to people uh, quick, relatively quick. And so far, fingers crossed, I've never been late. Almost all of my campaigns have gone early. So that so that's step one that I look at. Step two that everybody has to look at is who are you going to be shipping these games to? In other words, what countries are you going to ship to? When I first started, there were easier rules with crowdfunding. So I was shipping directly, Blue Panther was shipping directly to Europe, to England, and it was great. I was shipping to Australia. Things were were cool. I lost money, like my sales to Australia. I knew I was losing money there, but that first game was about Gallipoli and I was not going to not try to get that to those folks there. Since then though, I think by my third or fourth Kickstarter, all the new EU rules and eventually the UK rules kicked in, and you had to have a VAT number and exploring that was like, okay, I just threw my hands up in the air. I'm not big enough to deal with that. So then I had to go figure out workarounds. So by that time, I'd had companies that were selling my games in the UK, in the EU. So they're doing pre-orders. And then when it's time to ship the Kickstarter, all of those folks that pre-orders are able to then go and pick those orders up. And then we ship their company orders from us. So they're the ones ordering it and working on the ship and all that paperwork to get it over to the to our folks in Europe. And that's not coming from, from me or Blue Panther. And so that's something right off the bat, if you're going to publish, you got to go and figure out what countries are you going to do? How much of a logistics nightmare do you want to get involved with to get your games out? Yeah, yeah, that uh, that seems to be a, a larger and larger headache for a lot of folks. That's, that's one of the first questions you see show up on many campaigns is, you know, hey, is this EU friendly or whatever? Jeff, I'm sure you've you've struggled with some of that yourself. Hell, you had problems filling out paperwork for Pennsylvania, but I mean, in terms of, of overseas shipping, how much of that is a consideration when you start uh, when you start planning this whole thing? Um, it's a big consideration because it can be a big boost for your campaign to be able to sell uh, to gamers globally. Uh, but it's no joke getting set up to sell into the EU and into the UK. Uh, for Before this last campaign, I did the horrible task of getting a VAT number. Um, and it was terrible. I, I, I can't even tell you, um, since Brexit, the, his majesty's customs and, well, I forget what it's called. I, the amount of time that I spent on hold with that organization, trying to unstick my application, um, was, was just awe-inspiring. Um, and if, if a guy, in that bureaucracy had not uh, essentially done the probably illegal kindness of giving me his direct email address. I don't think that probably that ever would have happened because he, you know, I called, I kept track of the calls. I was on my 24th call to them, I think. And like some of these calls, I would be on hold for 50 minutes. Um, It really, it, it was really eerie. The one time they changed the hold music and I was like, wait a minute. Um, But, but so I wound up like he went back and looked in the system and he came back off hold and he was like, yeah, that's never going to go through. (laughs) So I'm like, okay. 
but um he like i said he did gosh tony i think was his name um and the the process of unsticking that um I did finally get the VAT number, and then that unlocks an EORI number. Both of those are necessary to ship games um, into the European Union. I work with a company called Spiral Galaxy in the UK in order to fulfill my European backers. They actually wound up fulfilling a lot of my rest of world backers because it's cheaper for them to ship uh, to most of Asia than it is for me to do those shipments from here. I've got a partner called Pick and Pack Logistics that does Canada shipments for me, uh, and I'm going to add VFI uh, in China to my next Kickstarter to fulfill uh, Asia and Australia and New Zealand a little bit more effectively than I can do now. Um, But it's no joke is essentially, uh, I can completely, um, anybody who looks at that and declines to do it is probably much smarter than I am. But <laughs> yeah, in terms of- this is, this is being done before Halloween. I don't know when it's finally going to go out, but this is great timing for Halloween. Cause what you just described is scaring the heck out of me. Um, it is, I, I was so scared about having to deal with all that that I was like, Am, do I really want to go through what I thought was going to be a nightmare? And then listening to you describe that, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm too, I'm too fearful. I can't do that. I'm too scared. Canada and U.S., that's going to be, that's the only ones I'm shipping to right now. So I could only talk to HMRC in the morning because London time. So I would have to call them first thing in the morning. Uh, at least one time I waited on hold for so long that their offices closed. Uh, there was one point where I got up at 3.30 in the morning because my my application had broken through one level to wind up in the next queue but if it did not get acted on in that next queue in time uh it would get bounced out forever so i needed to talk to a human before their automated process could act on it so that had to happen first thing in the morning london time so i got up at 3:30 and waited on hold and talked to some you know like It was stuff like that. At the beginning of this process, I eventually wound up having to change my uh, plan with Verizon so that I could call the UK for one fee per month. Because what was happening at the beginning of this is I... I learned later that I was, I think, paying three bucks a minute to call them. But Ooh. there were two pre-recorded messages that I had to listen to before I could even find out if they were accepting people on hold. And those messages together took more than two minutes. So I was paying about five bucks to find out if their hold queue was even accepting people. Um, it's it's Kafka, man. It's Kafka. Oh, that's, ow. I can't even remember what the original question was because now I've gone back to the days <laughs> of my VAT application. Um, oh. it's, but so as, as difficult as that process was, there is an extent to which if you would like to make this your profession, it's sort of worthwhile to do it because it increases the number of games that you can sell by maybe 20 or 30 or 40%, depending on what kind of games you're making and whether they're popular in Europe and rest of world, or whether they're mostly going to be domestic games. Um, But there's also an extent to which your willingness to battle your way through hellish bureaucracy will set your company apart from other companies that just aren't, you know, so you'll, it's, it's like a, a, stupid thing you can do completely unrelated to the quality of your game that is sort of a survival mechanism. So because I'm pretty committed to making this relatively new and small company that I'm running now succeed, I I 
feel like it was probably worthwhile to spend that time. It was not fun. It's a worthwhile war story now, I guess, but it's not, uh, it, it's no bueno. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like a hazing ritual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you win foreign sales. Congratulations. You get to level up. Uh, poor Tim, he's still stuck back there at zero level and he's not going anywhere on this track. Man, yeah. but so one of the things that I have long told people when they are interested in publishing is that they should be real aware of what they want to get out of it. Um, and if they want it to be a career, they've got to do a completely different set of things than if they want to do it as something that they do on the side of something else where their actual mortgage gets paid from. So being super clear on that really answers the question of whether you want to spend 32 calls with the HMRC. Yeah. 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 I'm not I, there yet. Maybe someday, but uh, right now I'll live vicariously through your experience and continue <laughs> just to sell to North America and Canada and, and be done with it. Yeah. During that brief five or eight year span or so, it was probably closer to five than eight when, when I was masquerading as a publisher. Um, something that, that I realized very quickly, and I'd never had any sort of mentor kind of take me aside and, and, and offer any sort of real guidance or advice about this, but, but something that I learned very quickly, and it's a major reason why I'm not a publisher anymore, and something that I have told anybody and everybody who've said, you know, I thought maybe I'd publish my own game sometime. As soon as you get in the publishing business, you are in the shipping business. You didn't mean to be, but you're in the shipping business. And, and if that's not something you want to do, then then design your stuff and sell it to somebody else. Because if you're publishing your own stuff, you are in the shipping business. So that's that's something I wasn't prepared for. And, and I learned the hard way. But even, even if you've managed to engineer your company so that you are not directly yourself in the shipping business, and I am, by the way, like I have, my desk sits next to gigantic stacks of games. And if somebody orders one, I go take it off the shelf and put it in a box or envelope and send it out to them, which is the cheapest like per unit way to get them out. Obviously, I got overhead expenses then, which is the space and so on. But yep. even if you intend to outsource those things to a third party logistics provider, if you don't know a relatively detailed amount about how that business works, uh, you're either going to get fleeced and you're going to spend with one of those companies an amount that is totally inappropriate to work that they're doing, or you're going to make decisions that make it extremely difficult for you to make any kind of profit. So one of the things that sometimes will happen with a Kickstarter campaign is they will add in all kinds of stretch goals where each one is two or three more cards. If you do that 10 times and your 3PL is charging you 45 cents for each additional thing that they put in the box, and you have packaged those things so that each of those two or three cards is in their own sleeve and so it's 10 different picks you've just spent four dollars and fifty cents which may be your entire profit margin on that game just putting those things into that box so yeah. to your point you are absolutely in the shipping business and even if you are not the one who's doing the shipping you've got to have a very very detailed understanding of how all those gears turn with each other uh or your I, I don't know if it, it's it's too much to say that you're doomed but you're sure not living your best life you may not be doomed but you won't be profitable we were covering down on, you know, what else we needed to do before you actually hit go on your Kickstarter. And I think it's instructive that we are an hour into this podcast and we have yet to actually hit the launch button on our Kickstarter. <laughs> And sure. I think that should be pretty eye-opening for a lot of the folks listening to this when they look at those crowdfunding campaigns and go, vert the flirt, right? <laughs> um, so so at this point, like, we're ready to hit launch. We we open our Kickstarter, and and then what? Like, 
Tim, once we've hit the go button, right now, now what happens? Just instant sales start piling in or, you know, holy crap, I need to, you know, like go remind people this is going on. Like what are you, what are you doing as the dude that's operating the Kickstarter now that you hit the launch button? What are the tasks on your to-do list? Well, immediately after that, I'll, I'll send out social media and let folks know, hey, we just launched this and go check it out, try to get some more information on that. Um, hopefully that helps drive some sales there. Um, once I hit go and I've done that, then the next step is making sure that you've got the time and availability to answer questions that come up on the Kickstarter, depending on what how complicated the game is or how different it is. Um, I've had some Kickstarters that have hardly any comments and I've had others that have had, you know, close to a hundred. When we, when I was with Academy games, we had to manage shifts for managing the content because or questions, because it, there would be so many coming in and granted they were very complicated Kickstarters with tons of options and things like that. And that's what you ended up spending so much time on not really wanting to go down that path and not really having games that, that kind of go down the add extra bits uh, variety. I don't really have a lot of those questions, but if you add more complication to your Kickstarter options, you will probably have hopefully get some more money coming in, but you're also going to have to manage all the kind of questions that are going to flood in as well. Yeah. So, so Jeff, on your side, like we're, we're launched, we're doing stuff. What's, uh, what's next? What, what, what are we doing now that we're live? My experience of Kickstarters in the last two years uh, is that for my games anyway, social media has become almost completely useless uh, other than when paid because the algorithms on both Twitter or whatever we're calling it now and Facebook uh, seem extremely dedicated to deprecating anything that's got a link in it or anything that is even talking about uh, doing commerce somewhere other than that site. Those sites are really, really invested in keeping you scrolling down on that page in order to look at the ads that are on that site. So I've had very, very little luck with social media. And I, I had been maybe two years away from directly managing campaigns um, when I launched the most recent with a Bander album remix Kickstarter. And I was extremely surprised at how Twitter tactics that had been very effective 24 months earlier had become completely useless. So on this last Kickstarter, I barely put anything on Twitter at all just because it was not returning me much at all. Um, I have moved most of my focus to direct email um, to newsletter subscribers. I spend a lot of time outside of Kickstarters, uh, very mindfully attempting to just grow the numbers inside the newsletter, because those are at least people that I can address directly. Now, I think, unfortunately, on even the next 24-month horizon, we're going to be doomed on email as well, because I think that it is going to become so trivial for marketers to use AI to generate human-sounding emails that it's essentially going to be impossible to spam filter for those. And so my suspicion is that everybody's going to stop reading email in the next two years. We'll see. We'll we'll revisit this in 2025 and see how that prediction turned out. But to get back to your actual question, my I, I do a lot of direct email uh, during the time that the campaign is running. I try to answer comments as fast as they come in, uh, answer direct messages about the campaign as fast as they come in, uh, kind of 
to Tim's point there. My experience with different campaigns is that you can avoid a lot of comments by making sure that your page kind of answers all of the questions that are relatively obvious. Most people seem like they want to um, self-serve in terms of those answers. And it sounds like Tim's comment rate is fantastic. You must be doing a lot right with a relatively low number of comments on those as well. Looking at some of the uh, some of the campaigns that are larger, even, even though there are thousands and thousands of backers for some of those campaigns, the comment counts on those just are, would be very oh, ridiculous if yeah. I was running those. Yeah. But recently, one of the, one of the reasons that I am most compelled by the idea of remaining on the Kickstarter platform instead of moving to a different one, uh, like GameFound, for example, but there are others is because Kickstarter really does seem to do a lot of lifting in terms of finding backers who would be interested in your project, who would not necessarily find out about it from you and making them aware of that campaign, whether you convert them or not, uh, is obviously on you and the page that you've put together. And Kickstarter's dashboard statistics on how many dollars that they have referred to your page are certainly and absolutely inflated past the lifting that they are actually doing. Um, but even so, I think that they are doing a lot of work in in sending interested backers to your pages. So I think there's a fair amount of benefit in using the Kickstarter platform specifically um, and in building your page in a way that will be attractive to sort of randos that Kickstarter sends your way. Now, I mean, they're not complete randos. These aren't people who came to Kickstarter to buy magic shoelaces. They are people that came to Kickstarter to buy games. Uh, but even still, even still, I think that there's a lot of benefit there. One of the things that I also do is to just leave that campaign open for a full month. I have yet to run a campaign that uh, did not have a revenue graph that just kept going up every day. I think probably there's a limit to what you could do, but my guess is that if I left a campaign open for 90 days, that it would continue making money on 89 of those 90 days. Now, they won't let you leave it open for that long, um, but on the other hand, you can leave your pledge manager open for as long as you want afterwards. And my experience is that those pledge managers will continue to make money in between the end of your campaign and the time when you fulfill it. So I don't know, there's, I'm not sure that I'm answering your question or not. A lot of what I do once the campaign is open uh, is work on the next campaign, honestly, because a lot of the things that you did to set yourself up for success were done before the campaign launched. And there's a limit kind of on the fruitful promotion that you can do while the campaign is running, given where social media seems to be at these days. Yeah, let yeah. me let me ask you this, Jeff, um, because I've come up with what I call the patented Tim Densham Kickstarter math formula. And yeah. that is whatever you get on day one times it by two. And that's what the total campaign is going to be. Um, and then when I've looked at like, you know, there's this u-shaped loop where you get most of your money on day one and then you get a fair amount on like the last two days and the stuff in between there might be you know like 10 20 percent it's it's you know you don't want to throw any money away but you're really not getting much during that middle time um and uh, so i i threw that out there for the last campaign and the folks that were you know watching i'm like well you know that's interesting we'll see what happened and then it was like almost exactly double what the first day was. So do you find that you 
you have a similar like yardstick that you use to to try to gauge where you think you're going to end up being um, based off of how the first day goes? The metric that has seemed to work for me is that about a third of the money will come from the first three days and about a third of the money will come from the last three days and the other third will come from all the days in between. Um, I've got another company that I know that does Kickstarters, maybe of a slightly smaller size, but they think that they raise about 50% of their money in the first two days. Uh, I think it probably depends a lot on, I mean, so those are the two metrics that I am most familiar with, and they seem to have held for the ones that I have run at that third, third, and third um, metric. I suspect, I suspect that it has a lot to do with how well you have already penetrated the universe of people who might be interested in your games. The projects that I have worked on tend to be um, relatively general interest games. So swing a dead cat and hit a gamer, and odds are that they will at least listen to a pitch for one of my games because they're relatively general interest. This other publisher that I was talking about, less so because their themes are pretty weird often. Um, and with war games, my guess is that the swing a dead tat cat <laughs> swing a dead cat test does not necessarily hit a war gamer if it hits a gamer. So you may be in a situation like for I, I don't have any doubt about the metric that you just shared, um, but it just you may be already addressing all of those people on the first day. The folks I know at Chip Theory Games only bother to run their Kickstarters for seven or eight days. Because frankly, they bring in a lion's share of their money in the first two minutes because they send an email. They've already got the email address of 20,000 people who already love their games. All of those people back it immediately. And it, it's almost wasted time for them to leave it open for more than three hours because everybody who wants it knows that they want it and they go to get it right away as soon as they hear about it and they hear about it instantly. So I don't know. I, it, it seems like different publishers have slightly different metrics, um, although they do seem to be consistent from campaign to campaign for those publishers, in my experience. I, I will say that that whole first day, last day kind of phenomenon it is not something that's exclusive to Kickstarters either, because over the summer, uh, Liz Davidson over at Beyond Solitaire partnered with us at the Dragoons to do a, a survey. A lot of folks have seen the, the People's Choice solo game survey, whatever it is that they do on Board Game Geek where one of the guys uh, has, has been doing this like 10, 12 years or something, um, where, where he asks folks for, you know, their favorite solo games, uh, board games, and he produces this big geek list on that. And one of the things Liz noticed was that there wasn't a lot of love being given to any of the war games or historical focused games out there that, that she wanted to, you know, let's do a, a top 25 or whatever uh, focused on the wargaming world. And so we, we, you know, we partnered with her, helped build the survey. We ran the survey part of it. She did a lot of the promotional part of it. And we got a crap ton of responses. We hit like 50 responses in the first hour, which is crazy for, you know, a, a, you know such a small survey like we were doing. Um, but of the, we ended up with over 250 responses and we probably got a hundred of those in the first two days and a hundred of those in the last two days and the other 50 in the six weeks in between. Um, one of the things we learned next year is we're not leaving it open for six weeks because that was just a waste of time. But it's not just Kickstarter folks that, you know, hey, this just launched. Oh, let me go pay attention to it. Hey, this is about to end. Oh, crap. I need to go pay attention to it. And in between, like, unless you remind people, hey, don't forget this is going on, like, nobody just stumbles across it. So I, I don't think that's something that's unique to Kickstarters. I think that's just broader public awareness of things that, that take place over time.
Oh. Tim, I got yep. a, my question for you about that pattern. I'm curious the extent to which you see um, an, an individual backer return campaign after campaign after campaign. Like, do you think that you reach most of your backers right away in part because they are the backers of all your previous campaigns? Well, um, I've got a very small newsletter. I think I've got like three, 400 people on there. Um, and I know that folks read that because I can look on the, the feedback there as far as clicks and openings and all that stuff. Um, and people talk about that when I look at the the backer list, of course, I'm being a totally non-scientific approach here. I didn't merge databases or done anything super sexy like that. But when I've looked at that, I'm surprised by how many names I don't recognize. Um, and that is one of the things that I keep going back to Kickstarter because I... I don't have another way of reaching out there and getting people that are just checking out and, and seeing, I wonder if there's any war games on Kickstarter right now and oh, check this game out. I'll, I'll get Zermatt or whatever it is. And, and so there's, I, I think that there's, quite a bit of people that are are single single uh, users of my company on Kickstarter that just happened to, whatever it was, just happened to hit their fancy. Uh, either it was something that they searched for, or they were just scrolling through games, or, or however that works, or they just backed another game said, you may like, and there's that list down at the bottom, and they went on from there, and and they, I reach people that I wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. So I would have thought that by now at number seven, that I would have seen like the very similar, but I haven't had any repeat family games. Like I'm, I, I have not had a second version of Zermatt come out yet. That's in the works, but it hasn't come out yet. I, so every game so far has been unique. So maybe if I start getting a family, start getting series of games or families of games, maybe that'll that'll change and I'll start to see repeats. But I see some repeats, but not what I was expecting. Uh huh. That's interesting. Tim, this may apply more to you than than to well, I'm I'm 99 certain this applies to you far more than Jeff. But a pet peeve of mine, again, as I'm compiling Tuesday Newsday, I'm searching a whole lot of different sources, and many of them I see at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. So I'm very I'm I'm able to very rapidly scan those websites for okay, anything different than the last time I saw it. Oh, that's the new thing. Let me go grab that for the news. The the searches that I've had pre-programmed kind of bookmarked the 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 search, you know, did the search, filtered down to what I needed for Kickstarter, bookmarked that page with that specific URL with the search criteria. One of the things that I found completely flipping useless about Kickstarter for the last six to eight months or so is that all of the terms that would apply in the wargaming world, like wargame or historical game or battle game or any of those kinds of things, the results are completely overrun with campaigns for STL files, which are just absolutely <laughs> useless. And yeah. I mean, seriously, like today, I, I, the, I did the same thing. So the, the, I, I, I go on there and I do the same thing when I do my little newsletter. And so I go out there and I try to find other campaigns out there that I think people might be interested in. So I did war game and between STL files, it's, it's nothing but minis. Um, because I guess war game in the UK equals minis. Yes. So there's, there's a lot of that. Um, and then I'll do his store 
because I don't want to, maybe there's history or historical or whatever. So I do historic games and I check that. And then I've learned, I guess, same way you have, is that the next step is tabletop games and then scroll, 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 because there'll be something in there that fits that fits that category. And I'm like, oh yeah, that'd be a game that people be interested in, but it didn't, I didn't find it on the first two searches that it should have, should have come up. So I don't know if it's that someone didn't put the, didn't put the right tag in there in their Kickstarter, or I don't know what it is. Cause I don't remember actually adding that onto the Kickstarters that I do, but however, however Kickstarter finds that stuff, it doesn't do a really good job. So I think you and I are both scrolling through a lot of STL files trying to find the needle in the haystack. For for the audience that may not know, those STL files are the the files needed for 3D printing. And so for people to 3D print their own minis, their own terrain, their own whatever at home, um, that's that's where those things completely overrun the war game and historical game categories in Kickstarter and and it would be fine if there was an ability to 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 put a not clause in your in your searches of the Kickstarter you know world uh, that that would be wonderful not, not STL and and that would screen out like I, seriously today when I hit the page I I loaded more like four times than I think I saw. Under the war game search, I think I saw two things that were not STL files. It just drove me. Yeah, crazy. and I, I I am just amazed by how many people apparently need to go out and three D print a librarian in a very revealing outfit with a battle axe. I mean, never would have dreamed that that would be something someone would a three D print. But apparently, from doing this month after month, stuff like that is quite popular. Yeah, who knew? So, other than the American Librarian Association, I guess. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, of course. We get to the end. Kickstarter has closed, assuming it was successful, right? Because if it wasn't, then, you know, we sort of learn some different lessons and move on. But, uh, you know, we asked for five grand. We raised eight. Yay. Woo. Yay us. You know, the, the Kickstarter is now successful. From the moment the Kickstarter ends and, and theoretically the money is there, the, the next steps in the to-do list, Jeff, what are the next couple of things that you're doing beyond sending the thank you message to all the backers? Um, I mean, the very shortest version of that answer is all the things that the page promised I would do, um, right? The very most basic way to build trust with people is to make promises and then carry out on them. Uh, so the thing, and I mean, in my case, that is sending the files to press pretty much right away. Usually I'm not going to run the Kickstarter until I've basically got files that are set to go to press. Usually I do not quite wind up in that state and there's a little bit of cleanup and stuff to do. But essentially it's sending those files to press, sending out updates every three or four weeks to make sure that people feel informed. Uh, even when there's not any new news, people uh, feel uninformed if they haven't heard from you. So you've got to remain in touch with them. Um, it is answering the factory's questions, looking at their soft proofs as soon as they send them over, uh, making sure that they don't go more than 10 or 14 days between hearing from you, even if they are quietly going along. Because if they do not hear from you, they will think you don't care how fast it goes. When in fact, you do care very deeply how fast it goes. Um, the the, uh, the logistics process, in my case, obviously Tim's deal is totally different because he's doing a domestic production of print-on-demand stuff. But the, the nightmare part of the production Gantt chart is the shipping process. It is dealing with the um, freight forwarder, 
It is dealing with customs. Uh, it is dealing with in-country shipping once it has made its way through customs. And it is amazing to me uh, how badly those things work in the year 2023. Um, even for, for not projects that are kickstarted or not, it is amazing to me uh, how little information a freight forwarder has about when your pallets of games are going to show up. It seems to me like uh, if Amazon can predict with reliability when my book is going to arrive on my deck, then surely a uh, 2000% worth of money value of games coming across on a pallet, it ought to be possible to predict when those are going to show up. Uh, obviously, I'm like to some logistics provider listening in the audience, they're just howling and holding their heads and slapping their knees about how ignorant that must sound. It's definitely not my expertise, but I'm just constantly floored by how apparently badly that whole set of, of issues is done. But anyway, like from my perspective, it's just once that logistics process gets to a certain point, it's just literally emailing them every Monday to remind them that I exist and I care when those games arrive. Well, the the thing that you're first having to run into uh, that people may not be aware of is when a campaign ends, let's say it ends at midnight tonight, then 0001 tomorrow morning, you don't get your money. Uh, you will get your money about, and I'm just, I've only had experience with Kickstarter, so I don't know how GameFound or some of the other platforms work, but they're going to try to go make sure that all those pledges actually get through. And so that means that they're going to, they're going to try to run everybody probably the next day and not all those cards are going to work. So then they try to go and run down the cards that don't work. And that process takes, it's supposed to take with Kickstarter three weeks, but I think the last one took about four weeks. So if you actually needed that money to go and move your project forward, there's like a built-in month that you have to wait before you can do anything. So there's an automatic add to that, that you, um, you won't know what your final backers are until you get that final list a month later to find out what you actually got and that's of course after kickstarter takes their cut along the way um and then you you take that whatever that money is left and then go about and, and make your games sorry you caught me taking a drink of water <laughs> right. so there'll be another so, again yeah the i think most reasonable people expect there to be a bit of a time lag from from end of campaign through the kickstarter processing uh until the money actually shows up in your account and and let's face it it's to kickstarter's advantage to hold on to it as long as possible to get that little bit of extra interest boost in their own bank account by doing so but i mean i'm one of those folks that has had to correct a pledge in the past with kickstarter because there was one that i backed and this was 2014 or so there was something that i backed that the bank flagged it as a fraudulent transaction and what was dumb about that is it's probably you know the third or fourth different kickstarter that i had billed to that card but the bank flagged it as a fraudulent transaction and so i had to you know change cards that i was billing this one to and jump through a bunch of extra hoops which was really kind of annoying um but yeah but I you know, that's the kind of thing that's going to create that delay that you're talking about there, Tim. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not complaining about the delay because that means that they're trying to go out there and help backers make their make their pledge happen. Oh, and yeah. that's I that's think. good for all of us in the end. Yeah, yeah. It I'm just adds them. time. <laughs> yeah, it just adds time to it. So you can't really go and use, you know, you even if you had everything all ready to go, like these folks have digital stuff, you still should be waiting until that final hit comes in and you find out who your true backers are, and then you can kind of go from there. And then along with that, then you're going to find out who your true international folks are. So you find out what your those real numbers are. And 
be able to start to figure out what you're going to do for uh, international shipping if you if you're doing that. So the point at which you've you've you know the Kickstarter has closed. You know you you hit your funding goal. The time expired. You've got the time lag in which the money you need for the money to show up. But beyond that, at at, at that point, and and Jeff, this probably applies more to you because Tim, I don't think you've done a whole lot of fulfillment that wasn't actually driven by crowdfunding stuff somewhere. But your print on demand model is a little different, also. Um, Jeff, the point at which the Kickstarter has closed and the money's now moved, um, how how different, if at all, is the rest of the process from from production through distribution to games on customers' tables? How is it all that different from a non crowdfunded production of a game, or is it just kind of the same thing with a bunch of other weird stuff at the front end? It's not. It's pretty similar. The thing that you have to make sure that you are doing is not doing any of the style of promotions that you might do on a traditionally funded game in a way that would suggest to Kickstarter backers like they got a raw deal. Um, And there's, you could do that by accident if you were promoting a game in a relatively typical way. You just have to make sure that you are um, never accidentally making your early backers feel like they made a mistake by backing you early. So the kinds of promotions that you might do to independent stores can't be better than what you offered to stores who backed your Kickstarter. Um, things of that nature. But but other than that, the, the process is pretty similar in my case. Yeah, yeah you, you have to be careful... Uh, when I was doing stuff uh, internationally, you have to be careful that you're you're not screwing over somebody in some country because in my case, I'm focused on trying to get that stuff out to folks in the United States as quick as I can. Yay, 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 they get their stuff. But then if you are like waiting until that's done and then shipping that stuff because of some snafu there, the folks in, in Europe aren't getting their games until months afterwards, then that's a problem. So you you need to go and try to figure out as best you can to try to, to smooth that over so that folks are getting their games at roughly about the same time, ideally. Yeah, yeah. And well, and so, it, it, Tim, in your case, where part of that is a little different because of that print-on-demand model you're using through Blue Panther, the, the production cycle is a little different, right? You you send the list of things over to Steve. Steve hits the, you know, the go button on the giant dr seuss machine he has that spits games out the other end and and he's he's the guy boxing them up and sending them places for you that that's different well, he's than, got his kid doing that now so it's uh they've moved on up <laughs> but but it is different than than you know the the freight company dropping the six pallets of games that jeff has yes. to wheel into his garage you know so yep. yeah um, it was a the last game that i worked for uh academy was vikings it was a big kickstarter campaign and we had we have fulfillment all across the globe and that was that was uh and, and had a lot of different options to put on there and so that was a logistical uh, uh huge logistical effort to try to make sure that we were hitting everybody all across the globe at as close as we possibly could uh timing wise and making sure that like jeff was saying isn't isn't missing isn't missing out doesn't feel like they're missing out ah. Ah. Ah.
one last thing I wanted to cover. I, I know we're really stretching how long I was, you know, bugging you guys to join us on this, but this has been a, a really fascinating conversation. I, I hope the audience is finding this really informative as well. Uh, something we didn't talk about during I, either the planning or the, the execution phase, because I, I think it's almost sort of its own separate category, is talking about stretch goals on Kickstarters where, you know, hey, if, if we get to a certain level, I, Jeff, you mentioned earlier, we're going to throw these couple of promo cards in there. Um, one that I remember was uh, when the early uh, the early campaigns from Gameland Games were going on with Tiny Epic Kingdoms and Tiny Epic Galaxies. They were talking about you know we'll we'll add two more races if we hit the next stretch goal. We'll add you know two new planets if we hit X stretch goal. In the case of those games, that meant another piece or two of cardstock you know that that was slightly larger than index card size. They were going to put in there just because the way those games are designed, where each player's got their own little cardstock mat in front of them with their race or their planet or their whatever that 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 didn't add a ton of physical stuff uh to be added to the box none of it was custom packaged in its own shrink wrap or anything um it, it was just you know another sheet of paper we needed to print to put in there that's you know in in the meantime you go look at some of the campaigns from from reaper minis when they do their bones campaigns and i swear to god i'm convinced that and until somebody from reaper tells me otherwise i will continue to believe that when they did that first campaign it started exploding so much that they were literally walking through their warehouse going okay what do we have enough of to add as a stretch goal because it just they, there were so many different random things that kept getting tacked on to stretch goals that that they really seemed to have outkicked their coverage that they were asking for 40 50,000 and it was at like 200,000 by day 2 and it was over a million by about day 12 and they just ran out of things they had already prepped for stretch goals uh, as as you start to look at the campaign for, okay, what kinds of incentives can I put on there uh, if we hit certain benchmarks? Jeff, what have you seen that that's worked and what kinds of, how does that change your production planning calculus? I have, I have not been involved in a campaign that has so outperformed expectations that that has become a real issue. One of the, one of the frankly, key tricks for avoiding that is to avoid saying too far in advance what the actual stretch goal amounts are. If you wait until 12 or 24 or 36 or 72 hours, open, unlock the first couple stretch goals, but then just space the six or eight that you have prepared out over the next two or three weeks so that the last couple of them are always in question. This is essentially stage magic, I guess, uh, but it seems <laughs> to work and keep people um, interested. All right, we, we won't tell anybody your secret. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, it, it, Tim, I don't think you've really packaged much in the way of stretch goals on yours just because of the, the production process that's involved in yours, right? Well, yes, there's the production process, but in addition to that, stretch goals equals drama. That that adds to comments in the, in the page, and that adds to questions that you have to follow up with afterwards that this didn't, this wasn't what this was, and I thought we got that, and so on and so forth. So it just makes life a lot easier if you just say, here's the product, and there you go. Um, now, because I'm almost entirely historical games, I can get away with that. I don't know if I could do that. Like, if we start to get some bigger games on the non-historical side, we're probably going to have to go into the, the realm of stretch goals, even though I'm really uh, happy not to have to deal with that. It sounds like you're just trying to avoid work. You got it. <laughs> you, man, you finally <laughs> figured it out. Gets it. Brant's got it down. He knows. He knows my number. Well done. <laughs> 
So, so as we start to wrap this up some, cause, cause this has been hugely informative and I, I, I really hope this helps give the audience a sense of what they're looking at kind of behind the scenes when, when they see those, the, the Kickstarter crowdfunding kinds of things go up there. Um, Jeff, if there's, if there's one key takeaway you want to leave the audience with on kind of behind the scenes of, of crowdfunding a game, what, what would that one key takeaway be? Even if you're just reiterating something we said earlier. Um, I think that the the most important thing about crowdfunding for me is planning well. Uh, planning well is even more important than it is if you're not doing a Kickstarter campaign because you've got to know everything at the time you ask for money as opposed to at the time you send the files to press. And you've got to know enough to be able to plan for different potential outcomes, uh, different ways that the campaign can go, different kinds of questions that you might get different kinds of stupid things that you might be tempted to do because backers request it or because the campaign blows up. But like, that's my, because of the way I'm wired, that's my whole thing with life is to plan well and to try to do a good job in the, on the tactical end of a thing. That's, that's not everybody's orientation towards life and towards stuff. So that's, that's just my inclination anyway. But as far as a crowdfunding campaign, uh, planning, planning is key. Tim, yeah, I need to take away in all this. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Um, I would say that uh, also that based off that planning, if, if you haven't figured this out based off the hour and 45 minute conversation we've had so far, most of the Kickstarter decisions have been made prior to the Kickstarter button being pressed. So we've pretty much got that all figured out as far as what's going on. Like the days of like, you know, this would be really cool if you if you did a bigger map. Yeah, that may be, but we're making the map that we've already decided we're going to make period. You know what I mean? Like I can, I have had opportunities to go and have some help and like fussing with the rules and things like that. But basically once that Kickstarter, once I've hit that Kickstarter button, it, you're going to get whatever that game is. And that generally when those, when the folks have, have, uh, <clears throat> they've got uh, pledge goals and things like that, they've already figured out what that, they, they know what they're going to be making. It's rare that there's going to be this surprise pledge goal that sneaks up on them. I I think those days are for most companies over as well. Yeah. Yeah, I I I totally get that. One last question for each of you that's a little off the beaten path, because Tim, I know you mentioned this earlier. I'm in this boat a little bit. Non-game product that you may have backed on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, obviously not GameFound because they're only doing game stuff. Jeff, is there a non-game something out there that you have helped crowdsource or crowdfund? And uh, what, what did you get? Um, so I've, man, I've done a couple of weird things. I've told earlier a joke about crowdfunding shoelaces. I have no joke done that. There was an outfit that did a Kickstarter for shoelaces that were strong enough that you could pull a semi truck with them. They had this guy who pulled a semi truck with shoelaces. So that is maybe my very weirdest back. Uh, but like even today, literally today on Indiegogo, I kicked in some money to help fund a film school classmates feature film. Uh, so she's raising money to get that done. Um, so all kinds of different stuff, shoelaces to films. <laughs> Tim, what about you? Oh, I have done way too many RPG things. Um, uh, that's like, still games. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, what else have I got? I did, uh, helped put a, put a couple shekels away to help uh, a movie theater get opened in Kabul because that's where I was stationed. I'm sure that's to great use these days. Um, I did, uh, uh, I... 
did some dice that were designed to help you figure out what kind of a meal you're going to make. So I guess you could say that was game related, but it was kind of on the fringe of that. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know it's kind of close. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a really cool, the last thing that I had that wasn't game related was a um, method to make coffee the same way that you can make tea where you put the coffee grounds into a little cup and you stir it around and it has a little squeezy thing there so that you can really push out the uh, the coffee and I, I'm planning to travel with that like maybe to Fort McCoy soon for example. <laughs> so so sort of the coffee equivalent of a tea bag? Well like not just a tea bag but you know you know how you can I don't know if you've ever had loose tea and so you have this yes. like little device that holds the tea together. This does yeah, the, the same thing ball. for coffee. Right but because you you need actually more effort to get coffee to to express itself probably using the wrong term there but whatever you have to like plunge this thing and that like squeezes more coffee guts out into your coffee and makes the talk coffee taste better so that guy who doesn't drink coffee you're not making it sound any more appealing That's yeah okay well for those of us like most people who drink coffee each day it it's a nice thing to have to travel with. So there you go. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I had, uh, I backed, there was a company that was doing a little MP3 player that was shaped like a cassette tape. Oh, that's and, cool. And had all the controls on it, but it, it actually went one step beyond. This wasn't like a stretch goal or anything. This was part of the design. It had a magnetic head in it that with the MP3 player, you could hit play and actually slip it into a tape deck and it would play, which I thought was really kind of cool because you could load up a cassette with 500 songs with the the onboard memory and pop it in a cassette not that anybody really has a cassette deck anymore but if you if you had grandpa's car you were taken for a spin you could pop your cassette mp3 player into it and let it go and uh I, it was it was a complete gimmick thing, right? I mean, there's there's zero practical use for this. The form factor is not nearly as useful as an iPod, and we all have music libraries on our phones today anyway. But as as a gimmick, it was kind of a neat little gimmick, and I went ahead and you know threw a couple of bucks at that one to to see what I could do with it. What a uh, world! Yeah, it it worked. It 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 did what it was supposed to do and the way it played the tunes for me. And it was kind of a cool thing that the kids were like, dad, what is that? Because yeah, I hadn't seen a cassette tape. Um, yeah. I'm just glad you didn't have the eight track model. I'm just happy to hear that. I don't know if they ever did an eight track model or not. I, I do know that the guys behind it had put a comment after they were done mailing everything out that said, you know, Hey, we're, we're really happy with how the final product turned out. We're, we're glad that a lot of you have, you know, enjoyed these things. We are never doing a crowdfunding campaign again because all <laughs> of the email abuse we got from everybody about, you know, why didn't I get it yesterday kind of stuff was just way too much. And so we're just never doing this again. So yep. that, that was a little unfortunate, but it was the, the final product was still pretty cool when I got it. So I was happy with that. Nice. But, cool. Um, well, this is, this is definitely run long. My wife's probably wondering what the heck's going on out here. Cause you know, I'm like well past the time I'm normally done recording podcasts and, and it's definitely past the time I asked you guys to commit to this, but thank you very much for sticking around and, and being a part of this. I'm, I'm sure the audience has gotten a lot out of it. And I really hope that that some folks find this useful, whether they're folks already in the business wondering about crowdfunding stuff or folks that that are, you know, wanting to launch into business and maybe seeing crowdfunding as a possible way to get into there or possibly just, you know, folks out there that that are kind of curious what goes on behind the scenes. So I, I really hope people have learned a bit about this. Um, and I thank you all very much for sticking around for this. And uh, and I appreciate it a lot. Jeff, thank you for being here. Tim, thank you for being here. And audience. 
Thank you for being here. Really appreciate you guys sticking with us for this. We'll catch you next time on another episode of Mentioned in Dispatches.